This is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates, helping you get out of debt. It's such a great topic. Uh, we're going to talk about payday loans. And is there a reason why we're talking about payday loans? Is they're, it something that's more everywhere, prevalent? They're everywhere, Elaine. Yeah, I'm, I'm seeing them more and more. Um, you know, there's not that much recent research, but um, I believe Ban, Ban City did a study in the last couple of years, and it was up 60% in a two-year period, the number of people that are using payday loans. so And I call it the crack cocaine of debt because it's the easiest to acquire and you never stop with one. People typically have five or 10 or 15 by the time they come to see me. And it really, it, it defeats their self-confidence when they're just going back and every paycheck is spoken for on a payday loan. So we'll talk about that. Now for uh, somebody in your business at Sands & Associates, licensed insolvency trustee, is it because is it because things people are just so much more challenged today than they've ever been in terms of trying to um, make payments or or get things paid for or you know what's what's the thing that's driving this? Do you yeah, think? It, it's the big macro trends. You know, cost of living goes up every yeah. year. Rent has increased incredibly in the last five years in Vancouver, and wages have basically treaded water. You know, maybe you've got inflation increases, but most people even that is great. Um, so for a lot of people, it's either unforeseen emergency expenses. You know, something happens and they right. don't have the you know three to six months of fixed expenses that we all should have saved away but it's very difficult to do so and probably harder today than it was exactly five years ago or yeah. last year even depending on where you're living or what you're doing mm-hmm. yeah sometimes it's you know a job loss um, something happens and you just need to incur financing as, as quick as you can and this is an easy way to access it um, but quite often it's just making ends meet in between paydays right. which unfortunately leads to a cycle that you know it costs you more to pay that back than you got so then your next payday you're also short and then the one after that, you're doubly short, so it can lead to quite a cycle. Uh, the research indicates that one in five consumers, so you know, ideally 80% don't, but 20% do, um, have at least six to 10 payday loans in a year. And that's BC-specific research. So one in five users of payday loans is definitely using them unhealthily with at least six to 10 of them. So does that mean that I've done this uh, w- once a month or twice a month for six months or three months yeah. or whatever to... Could be. Wow. So, uh, so in British Columbia, payday loan can be for a value up to $1,500. So there is a limit on it? Yeah. So there, there's lots of regulations around payday loans. Um, but again, it's, it's such a high cost thing as we'll go to. So in BC, a payday loan can be up to $1,500 and it has to be repaid on your next payday. Okay. Um, if you don't repay, there's additional interest and fees added to the loan, which then increases your debt. Um, and as we mentioned, even if you do repay, the high cost of the loan probably means you've got less money to live on than you would have otherwise. Yeah. Um, so you know, in a nutshell, it's short-term extremely high cost financing, the highest cost financing you can probably find out there. And we'll go through that. And it's so, and like you said, it's so available. So are yeah. there actually more um, more uh, retail spaces that are doing this this work than there were, than there have been. It certainly appears that way. Any okay. downtown that you look through, you know, you see, you know, basically a lot of them have money either as their first or second second word of, the, okay. of their of their title, and you'll see a lot of them in downtown core. So I think there is a, a very growing uh, type of business. Okay, so let's say I am in a, a position that I have to I have to do this. What kind of uh, what kind of cost am I looking at? Yeah, this is what kind of knocked me off my chair the first time I learned. So a two week payday loan works out to an annual percentage rate of ready for this four. 
Wow. So this means if I'm not paying it off within the year, I'm paying 400% of the... Or Well, now that would be criminal because the Criminal Code of Canada, they set a rate of 60%. That's the maximum interest that's allowed. So if you kept a payday loan for a year, they're not allowed to charge you 400%. So where does the 400 come from? That comes from the two-week period. So you borrow money oh. and you know the cost is, you know it's often $15 or something on 100, something like that. Um, so you pay some costs back. But what it works out to over a 14-day period those fees that you've cost that you've been charged is a four hundred percent annual cost, Ugh. and if you don't pay it back, they're not allowed to keep charging the four hundred percent, but they'll charge you thirty percent. That's nice, right? Which is <laughs> which is still crazy ridiculous. Crazy an amount of money. Which is you know that's the top end of any credit card. A credit card is typically you know twelve to thirty percent, twenty percent is probably an average. So you're about one and a half times what a credit card interest rate would be. And it's not necessarily somebody who's um, you know a gambler or a drink. You know, like it's not it's not that it doesn't it's not always those yeah. folks that are that are struggling already with addiction of some kind yeah. but it could be just the average your next door neighbor who mm. is in a bind it, it absolutely is that that elaine so um, first off in bc we use payday loans almost more than anybody else in canada so interesting yeah and it, i think again it speaks to the consumer being squeezed and the high cost of living and the uncertainty of income but in 2014 again most recent research we've got yet uh 5.6 percent of bc adults nearly 200,000 people in the province. So it's not a small number of people here used payday loans and that compared to 4% of adults in Ontario. So 4 to 5.6%. That's a big difference in between two, you know, relatively affluent provinces in Canada here. And what really jumped out to me too, Elaine, is as you mentioned, the profile of these people uh, who use payday loans, most people are employed and they have completed post-secondary education. This is not just folks um, who don't know any better, you know, to to use that. Um, These are folks that, you know, just really don't have other options unfortunately. So how how does BC, I mean, so you talked about we have the highest rate in the country. Mm-hmm. Um, how are we uh, in terms of regulating uh, the operations? Are we pretty good with that or are we, are we a little more lenient than other provinces? Like, why do you think BC is leading the way in this? Yeah, I don't think it speaks to regulation as creating the demand. So Consumer Protection BC oversees, um, you know, payday lenders and they've set the maximum rate of $15 per $100 borrowed. And I be amazed if payday loans, you know, go out and be above and beyond that. Okay. Um, but again, I think it speaks to just the consumer feeling so uncertain and um, sometimes feeling like they have no other options. And what I wanted to do as well today, Elaine, is to actually compare, you know, what are the costs of a payday loan compared to the other okay. options that you might have out there? Perfect. Um, because, you know, there are other options, you know, you can either borrow the money from somewhere else, or you can try to talk to your creditors and try to figure out, hey, is a two week delay going to be something that, you know, maybe I can actually talk myself through and not have to borrow the money? Yeah. Well, let's talk about cost first. Yeah. So, comparing them. Yeah. So if you've got a payday loan and let's say it's a $300 payday loan and you repaid it on time, um, after 14 days, you're going to owe $345. So it's going to cost you $45. That's right. So $15 per the 100 got it. Uh, for 14 days. Okay. So let's keep that in our mind, $345 to borrow a 300. Yeah. If you had a line of credit after 14 days, $305.81. So just $5.81 after 14. So that's one a much, ninth of the cost. But not everybody can get a line of credit. That's correct. So let, let's consider some other options, okay. right? And you're right. Not everyone can get a line of credit that's low rate. If you don't have a house or if you don't have great credit, it could be tough. Right. Um, but a lot of folks have overdraft. 
And if you have overdraft, well, overdraft is going to cost you $307.19 after 14 days compared to $345. So can I just double that $719 and say for a month it's going to be $14.36? Yeah, you're not going to be too far off there. Okay, yeah. all right. Yeah, so you could, and what you're saying there, Elaine, is you could borrow the money for a lot longer for the same cost if you were using overdraft. Yeah, and depending on where you do your banking uh, would determine the overdraft rate, too, because not everybody has the same. Yep. Okay, so, and the other alternative, which I, I've i always thought, I thought it would be much more expensive than that, is is the cash advance on a credit card. Yeah, and this, as I was writing this out, you know, my hands were almost shaking. Am I a licensed insolvency trustee telling people that a cash advance on a credit card is a good thing, and that's something we should, we should be doing? And typically, the answer is no. But if your option is, I'm going to do a payday loan, or I'm going to take a credit card cash advance, cash advance on a credit card after 14 days, $307.42. So again, about $14. Dollars and eighty cents, fifteen dollars for the month over a month you, yeah. compared to again three forty five for just two weeks on a payday loan. So right. it's not even close. This is the most expensive financing you could ever find in the province of BC. Yeah, because that's ninety bucks on a month. Mm-hmm. That's a lot. That's a lot of money to owe because you're already in a position where you're short. Yeah. Of money. Exactly. Short on cash. Yeah, and let's say that you can't pay it back. You can't pay back the 345 after the 14 days. Well, what happens then? Well, as soon as you take the payday loan, you give them your repayment right then. You give them either a pre-authorized debit or a post-dated check. So they're going to come and take that money to withdraw it no matter what. If that money's not there, they're going to charge you probably $20 for a dishonored check, um, as well as your bank is going to charge you 40 or $50 for an NSF. So what are we at, 60 or $70 of additional costs yeah. um, if you're not able to pay it back? That gets added to the loan, and then that whole balance starts to take interest at 30%. Right. And that NSF fee, uh, is that the... the uh, payday loan people charge of forty to fifty dollars, or is that what the average bank? You get now it on, on both sides. So payday lenders are typically about twenty bucks, and the okay. average bank is typically between forty and fifty dollars. Is that right? Because that's, that's a lot. That's a lot higher than it used to be for sure. Yeah, no, yeah. It, it's around that that margin again. You might get a better deal in certain banks, certain accounts, but the ones I see, it's yeah, typically forty, forty-five dollars quite often. Okay, so I'm sitting there listening to the radio, listening to us tell me this situation, and I'm short on money or sure, I, I feel the stress that this is coming on, what do I do? What do I do? Yeah, I would say, you know, don't be swayed by the marketing. Um, you know, these these payday loan companies are great. They've got catchy jingles. You know, sometimes they do community sponsorships and things like that. But it's really dressing up something that's very, very bad for the consumer typically. So the more you're able to, you know, just say no to the loan and, and to figure out another alternative, the better off that you're going to be. Um, so some of the alternatives we talked about are things like asking your bank for an overdraft, even looking at a, a credit card cash advance. Again, be very, very careful because you don't want to get into that cycle. But yeah. for a short term, cash advance is going to be a lot cheaper. Um, you know, one thing that I find consumers, when I talk to folks on the phone, I say, you know, this is a payday loan for rent, right? Oh yeah. Well, you know, are you worried if you pay your rent two days later, you'll be evicted? I'm terrified of that. Well, that can't happen. Two days late on your rent, you won't be evicted. You'd have to be significantly later months after months. But quite often, if this is an isolated incident, go and talk to your landlord. You right. know, Tell them, these are the difficulties that I'm having. I'm getting paid on this date. Let's write a post-dated check. And you know, next next month or the month after, I'll have a plan so that this doesn't happen again. Right. You can imagine if you face it head on with your landlord, you'll save the fees, perhaps build a bit of a better relationship there as well. And what's your downside? You're not going to be evicted just by asking to pay the rent late on a one-time basis. Even if the landlord tells you that or is yelling that at mm-hmm. you, uh, they can't do it. That's right. And we've had, you know, various um, tenant organizations on the show here Absolutely. before. Absolutely. I'm there, thinking the same thing. Yeah. There's a lot of protections in the province of BC. 
Okay. All right. So you wanted to you wanted to add something to this segment. We've got a, just about a minute left. Yeah. This, I would say, is the latest and greatest or latest and worst thing that's out there for consumers, perhaps greatest for lenders, is I figured out um, that lenders are trying to charge additional fees that really boggle the mind. So um, I've got documents in front of me, and I won't say which company they're from yet because I need to do a little bit more research here, but this was provided to me from a consumer, and this company is an alternative to a payday loan. So they provide a loan, um, and in this case, the person was borrowing $700 at 32% interest. So not cheap money by any means, at no. least not as bad as a payday loan, but 32% interest. They were going to pay back five equal installments over the ensuing two months, and they'd pay back $730 on the $700. So sounds not terrible, right? You right. Know, it's $30 to borrow $700. Now, a bunch of fees are charged on top of that. Uh, so $40 if there's any default of payment in addition to any bank fees. Okay. Uh, $25 for any request to post postpone a payment for any reason, uh, and then 50 cents for every payment they actually take from your account. But the thing that really made me crazy, Elaine, yeah. is the second part of this. We've got the loan agreement that says it's going to cost you $732. Yes. But to get this loan agreement, they require you sign a brokerage agreement saying they're going to shop around and find you the best financing. It's the same company, the same brokerage agreement Ugh. with a fee of $325. Wow. Listen, if any of this information resonates with you and you want more information, uh, Sands & Associates has a great website. Uh, it's sands-trustee.com just loads and loads of good information Uh, 1-800-661-3030 is the phone number to book that free consultation and to find an office near you Thanks for joining us. Dollars and Cents with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. Get a financial fresh start by calling 1-800-661-3030 for a free consultation and to find an office near you. With Blair right now talking about steps to take when you owe taxes. Mm-hmm. And this is for, you want to pay attention to this if you're one of those people and there's tens of thousands yep. of you, you're not alone, that you haven't paid your taxes. Yeah, you get that notice of assessment back, and instead of saying, you know, deposited into your account refund, it says, no, balance due, and by the way, we're charging you interest. So it's not a, not a happy notice of assessment to receive. And in some cases, it might go back a few years. I mean, I yeah. know lots of folks who just, for some reason, at some point, stop paying taxes. And I thought, are you kidding me? You, mm-hmm. you, you know, they have income, they have all that stuff, and yet... Uh, somewhere along the line, they decided, oh, no, I don't need to file my taxes. I'll have to pay a little bit at the end, but whatever. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, I I see that day in and day out. You know, some people, they've went 20 years without without filing taxes, just off the grid. And obviously, they're not getting government benefits. They're not getting GST checks. You know, there's a bunch of reasons why you'd want to file your taxes every year. But the most important one is it's the law. So you not filing taxes is actually worse than owing the government a ton of money. That's okay. We can deal with that. But if you're a non-filer, that's actually the worst status you could be in Canada Revenue Agency's mind, because it's really, it's your job. Part of being in civilization is you got to file your taxes every year. And it has gotten easier too, Elaine. You know, 20 years ago, you had to do a lot of things by hand and calculators and all that. Most people can do their taxes inside of half an hour with some software. You pick up a Costco, you know, do five returns for $30. You know, it doesn't have to cost you a lot or take you a whole 
whole lot of time. Right. Now, a couple of reasons why people wouldn't, and I understand this, if you've got a bunch of different jobs. Yeah. So in terms of how you end up owing the government money, quite usually it's not a surprise, but sometimes it is. And something that could surprise you is if you're working multiple jobs, you know, say you got a second job to make ends meet, um, you know, finances are tight and you think you're doing, doing something great, getting some extra income. What can happen is if your second employer isn't told off the top to deduct taxes at a higher rate, you might not be getting enough taxes deducted from your second job, which means at the end of the year, the government is going to want some of those dollars paid to you, paid back to them. And a lot of the times with a second job, you know, you're getting that money and you're spending it on necessities. You're not saving it. You know, it's extra money. Extra money. I I don't need to to hang on to this. This is extra money. Right. So when the tax bill comes due, um, you know, you can imagine the bit of the depressed feeling too, saying, oh my God, all, all this work. Now I've got to work extra hard to clear the tax bill from last year. One of the things, too, I I ran into a very long time ago, worked for uh, a company that decided all of its employees were going to be contract players, Mm, even though we had a very set time that we had to be in the building to do our job uh, for a certain time uh, every day, Monday to Friday. uh, But they thought, no, we're, we're pretty sure that this is okay. And they said one little proviso that you may want to save some money just in case <laughs> you may want to they come back and say no you can't do this you need to pay this and this and this yeah. uh, and it was a shock to the company of course uh, Canada Revenue came back and said oh no what you people are doing as a company mm-hmm. is wrong but it was the onus was on the employees yeah. to then uh, pony up all the money that we uh, didn't pay out on a on a per check like you do mm-hmm. now in, in most in most businesses. Yeah, I see that a lot in the film industry, specific to the Lower Mainland here, where a lot of, um, you know, not even employees, because they're basically independent contractors. Right. And they may work on the same show for quite some time or, you know, under the same umbrella, a bunch of different shows. But the big difference is the onus goes, and you can see why employers would want to do this, the onus goes from the employer to have to pay taxes on your behalf to Canada Revenue Agency to the onus goes completely to the employee that you're going to receive a gross amount of wages and your responsibility is to put money aside to pay the tax man at the end of the year or pay them monthly. But it's so much more work and more difficult for you having to do it yourself instead of being someone that gets a paycheck and gets the taxes withheld and everything is compliant from that perspective. Yeah, it's a little easier for sure. Oh, absolutely. But you know, I think you're right. In today's uh, working world, especially in a city like Vancouver, where you've got uh, not just film and television and, and that entertainment industry going on, but you've got the huge tech sector too. And you can work on small jobs, small projects, uh, or contracts with various companies. And they don't necessarily have to be a Canadian company. They could be Mm -hmm. from the States, from California, and all, you know, different things apply. So really important to pay attention to that. Yeah, if you're not getting deducted taxes, if you're getting an amount that's no gross wages and nothing is taken off of it, take between 25 and 35% of it and just put it away. The best case is at the end of the year, you're not going to owe that much in tax, but at least you'll have a really good starting point if you do end up owing tax if you save some of that gross amount. Yeah. Okay. So good advice. 25 to 35% in the bank, in a savings account, do not touch. That's right. 
for the year. Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, what other what other causes do we have for people that end up uh, owing taxes? Oh yeah, cashing in your RSPs. Yeah, hugely depressing one, right? Because yeah, it quite is. often you're cashing in RSPs as a lump sum to do something with it, and mm-hmm. often that something is to pay some debt. And you know, usually that's a very bad move, and we'll talk about that on, on another show. But you don't have to cash in RSPs to pay debt. But the impact is that when you cash in RSPs, all that money comes into income in the current year. So when you put the money away, you got the tax break back however many years ago and you got a bit of a refund, but now the government is going to count that as your income. And when you pull the money out from the financial institution, they're going to hold back 10 to 30%, but that may not be even close to what your marginal tax rate is, depending on what your income is. Right. So it could be the case that at the end of the year, the RSP money is gone, but there's a tax liability that could be significant for those RRSP funds when they were pulled out. So you might end up you know, just trading one problem for another, meaning that you now owe the government instead of the debt that you tried to clear with the RRSPs, but you don't have your RRSPs anymore because they've been cashed in or at least a significant portion. So the very best advice when it comes to RRSPs don't touch them? Don't touch them. Consider it the same as a company pension plan. You can't touch a company or a government pension plan. You don't have that option, and that's a good thing because otherwise, you know, you might cash it in your time of need and not have it later. Treat your RRSPs the exact same. Don't cash them in in your time of need. Now, if I'm at the other end of my working life and I'm nearing the end of my working mm-hmm. time, uh, what do I do with my RRSPs at that point? Yeah, and that's when it's a totally different conversation. Then it's okay. At some point, you want to start drawing these down for the purpose, which is to support your income during retirement. So ideally, you're going to work with an advisor or you're going to figure things out on your own, but you're going to forecast your tax liability. So you'll know exactly what you can pull out, knowing that you'll have enough to make your tax payments at, at the end of the year. So it's important to do that calculation. It's also really important to remember that that does become income. Yeah. Like when you start taking that money out, which I, I went through with my parents and it was, I just thought, what? Yeah. We have to pay tax on that money for my dad? It's like, that seemed like a crazy thing. He's already, and of course they calmed me down and said, no, mm-hmm. that's that's the beauty of this thing is that this yeah. money's been saved. Now he gets to use it, but based on the income, whatever that may be, you've got to pay on it. Mm-hmm. That's right. Uh, let's see, what else? Receiving EI benefits. Yeah, so if you end up uh, receiving EI benefits and you start to work and there's some overlap there, dollar for dollar, the government is going to hold you accountable for any benefits that you received when you were also working. So even if it was you know, just a two-week overlap, that could be a couple thousand dollars you know, at the, at the end of the year here. Um, so be very, very careful that your EI benefits are coordinated exactly to when you've either started or, or stopped working. If there's some overlap, some double dipping. Um, the government takes a very harsh view of that. They basically call it fraud, um, essentially, and they're, they're not going to be willing to walk away for, from that debt. So they will collect from you. So just try not to get yourself in that situation. And so, so clearly that means what? When it comes to EI, that EI has to end mm-hmm. on whatever date. You just have to tell them when you start working. That's the biggest thing. This debt arises if you continue to collect EI and you start working and you don't tell them. Okay, so EI ending on the 30th, my job starts on the 1st. I'm in good shape. You're generally okay. Yep. All righty. We've been talking with Blair Manton from Sands and Associates about what to do when you owe tax money. For more information, sands-trustee.com. 
We cover a lot of topics here every week on Dollars and Cents, from mistakes not to make when you're in debt, to mapping out the mystery behind credit scores and reports and everything in between. We'd love your input as a listener on what financial-related topics are important to you. Tell us what you want to learn more about. Send us an email to radio at sands-trustee.com. That's radio at sands-trustee.com. You're listening to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin with Blair Manton from Sands and Associates, helping you get out of debt. In this segment, we're talking to Steve Fruitman, one of the founding partners of Magellan Law Group. It's a leading firm of lawyers based in Langley, specializes in business law. Areas of practice include corporate, commercial, securities, pensions, benefits, trust law, a huge gamut of, uh, of focuses, which is going to be great for this segment. Um, and of course, Blair Manton's here as well. Of course, from Sands and Associates, as always. Hey, Blair. Um, so let's just talk about Magellan Law, Steve, right off the bat. Uh, what's your? What's the firm's focus? We sort of know what your focus is. What's the firm's focus? Um, our, our firm focuses. We're, we're a full service law firm, so our firm focuses on uh, you know business law, of course, which is uh, my area, which you pointed out earlier. Uh, we also have a, a niche practice area in uh, cannabis regulation and uh, litigation and dispute resolution. Interesting. Well, cannabis resolution—that's it. That's uh, or cannabis law—that's fascinating and brand new to everybody. It, it really is, and it's uh, it's really been taking off quite a bit right now. Yeah, I, I think bet. it's a bit of a topic for a future show, hopefully. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Very much so. Uh, and, and Steve, what, what makes Magellan Law different? Because I, I, I know you and I go back a number of years, um, and I know you were working with uh, various firms beforehand, and then you, you were one of the founding partners of Magellan's. What was the idea of starting off Magellan? What do you think could be different with the firm? It's really uh, Blair service. Um, you know, I like to think that we're uh, we've got better lawyers than the average firm. But uh, I tell people that even if you accept that we're you know we're just other lawyers, um, it's the commitment to service excellence that uh, has really set us apart. Uh, accessibility to our clients, willingness to work around client schedules, um, and uh, and just basically to make sure that there's a good client focused experience. Um, the other piece of that, like I said, uh, even if you accept that we're just, uh, you know, average lawyers, I don't think <laughs> that's the case. Um, as you pointed out earlier, my experience goes back with uh, downtown law firms, both in Vancouver and in Toronto. Um, and as such, the focus that we've had is to hire lawyers and uh, and senior legal staff that have the same kind of experience. Um, so what we've ended up doing is building a downtown law firm in Langley. And Langley's just grown leaps and bounds over the past, well, I don't know, years and years, I'd say. It's sort of a slow growth, but boy, oh boy, a bit of a, bit of a boom going on right now. That's obviously got to help. Absolutely. It's, uh, the businesses are moving out from the downtown core, finding uh, cheaper rents here. Um, same thing with, uh, with people in general, finding it a more affordable place to live. So a great community to work and live in, and uh, it's been fantastic for, uh, for Magellan. So what, what kind of issues uh, are, are, are people focusing, coming to see you on specific, on a sort of a specific area of the law? Or is, I know that you're a full-service firm, but is there areas that you're sort of into right now that you thought, oh, that's interesting. As Langley grows, so do we. And this is what we focus on a little bit more than the other issues. 
Um, I think that's a good question. Um, I took some time uh, in thinking about uh, our chat today about what, uh, you know, really where the practice uh, is uh, is differing. Um, but we're just seeing more uh, in, in each area. So, for instance, you know, typically in business law, I help people set up businesses. It just seems that uh, in Langley, we're setting up more businesses and, and more often. Um, but I see people uh, with help setting up new businesses, acquiring uh, businesses as some of the, uh, the older generation is transitioning their, uh, their businesses to uh, um, uh, retirement. And, um, you know, also uh, dealing with disputes of all sorts. Uh, obviously, as business grows, so do the, uh, the nature of the disputes. So our, our litigation group has really seen uh, an increase in um, resolutions that need to be uh, worked out. And it's interesting, Steve, that you mentioned that, because I'm sure this isn't the, the model that we'd like. You know, it'd be great if a lawyer is engaged, you know, at all stages of the business life cycle. But sometimes, you know, it's, it's when there's a problem, when there, there's something that comes up. Um, that's when, you know, you, you pick up the lawyer on speed dial and, and get everybody up, up to speed here. But um, I'm wondering, what are the main pitfalls you see from a legal perspective for small business? So a lot of the clients you work with, what's, what typically um, can tend to drag them down? Um, that's a good question, Blair. I mean, and, and, and as you mentioned, one of the things that I really try to focus on is to ensure that we find ways not to end up in a dispute resolution um, situation. My job, if I do it right, is to ensure that uh, you don't see any disputes and you don't meet anyone from our litigation group <laughs> because uh, uh, really the costs of resolving a dispute are way, uh, you know, way outweigh the cost of planning around it and structuring yourself in a way that you don't end up in that situation. So the, the main pitfall really is not consulting uh, with a lawyer um, from the outset, uh, not meeting um, to discuss different types of business structures, uh, jurisdictions in which you um, you might want to set your business up. Uh, sounds like a no-brainer if we're working in uh, in, uh, in BC that we'd set up a, a BC company, for instance. But that's not necessarily always the the choice. We oh, is that right? Look at a, might look at a partnership. We mm. might look at a sole proprietorship. We might think of incorporating um, federally. So there's a lot of different, and there's not-for-profits as well. So there's a lot of different options out there, and I think they really need to be uh, explored before, um, you know, committed to. Right. And Steve, when we were planning this segment, you said, you know, one thing that we should really talk about, and I agreed with you here, it's something that's really important and overlooked, um, is a shareholder's agreement amongst business partners. Because, again, with any relationship among people, you start off with the best of intentions, and you never think that things are going to go sideways at all. Um, But can we really start at the basics? You know, what is a shareholder's agreement, and what should it cover? That's a really good question. A shareholder's agreement, you know, I liken it to a, a prenup for, uh, for business owners. Right. It sets the terms in terms of how you're going to deal with uh, dividing your assets should their uh, transition be required. And I use the term transition because uh, it's not necessarily a business dispute that will uh, necessitate the, you know, the use of a shareholder's agreement. Uh, sometimes one of the owners may pass away, uh, may decide that it's time to retire, or uh, has to relocate, relocate the family for, uh, for various reasons. So as a result, they need to uh, unwind or uh, um, you know, divest themselves of their interest in the company. And a shareholder's agreement will you know, set in advance the mechanics by which the partners can divvy up the shares and, uh, and do this with as minimal disruption to the business as possible. 
How how prepared do you have to be? Uh, I mean, I was involved in a business a very long time ago, and it seemed pretty complicated. This was a number of years ago. Uh, how prepared does one have to be uh, before they come and see you to enter to to create shareholders agreement or to set up a company? Um, that's a really good question. I think um, you know, for the most part, it's important for people to understand what their objectives are. And when I say understand what their objectives are, I don't really mean that in a, in a legal sense. I mean that in a, how do you want this to work for you? What is the right solution for you? And there really isn't uh, a one-size-fits-all. Now, a lot of uh, uh, clients will come and say, well, you must have an agreement off the shelf that's going to, uh, uh, you know, you can just yeah, repackage boiler it. Boilerplate, right? <laughs> yeah, boilerplate, put, put, put my name on it and, uh, and it will work. Well, um, it doesn't actually work that way because not everyone wants to transition their company um, on the same basis. And, uh, it, you know, it's really what works best for you. So that would be the best uh, way to prepare for a meeting with me. Once we get into into my office, I'm able to deal with the legal issues, and I'm able to coach and to guide the parties um, towards a, uh, a solution set that's going to help them um, achieve their objectives. And I try to do things, um, Blair, I try to do things in a way that also helps keep the cost down. So I, I've developed a form of a, a checklist, a questionnaire that can help the parties guide themselves in conversations about how they want this to work for them and then i'll coach them on this and that will allow them to have these conversations behind the scene and allow uh allow them to come back to me you know focused and and ready for my advice and then to prepare an agreement and you use the analogy, Steve, that you know a shareholders agreement is is like a, a prenup, which ideally you know you'd never need unless th- things go bad, for example. But if someone's listening out here um, and they've got a corporation and they don't have a shareholders agreement, what are their risks and the impacts of not having that agreement? Because I think we're talking about benefits here, but yeah, what if you don't have it? What are you exposed to? You're you're exposed to uncertainty um, and potentially. Uh, litigation and and costs. Um, for instance, say we're not talking about a dispute. Say one of the partners passes away, um, and I see this happen, you know, quite often where the shares that that particular owner had fall to the estate. The estate, you know, maybe a spouse had nothing to do with the business, doesn't right. really know the business partners, doesn't really know what arrangements uh, the business owners had among themselves. They'd been friends, say, forever and, uh, and knew how they were going to unwind this and knew how they were going to handle this, but that was never communicated to the spouse. You get into that situation, a spouse um, gets their own legal advice and thinks, well, this is great. I've got uh, half of this valuable company, and, uh, and by George, I'm going to get everything that I'm entitled to. Uh, and that wasn't necessarily the deal, or that wasn't how they were going to handle it. So um, this can end up being a real challenge. Um, the other situation is where partners just stop getting along. Um, it happens in marriages. Everyone goes into a marriage, you know, not thinking it's going to fail, but thinking it's going to be a success. And the same holds true for businesses. Um, when, um, when you run into a, a, a dispute, if you don't have a preset arrangement in terms of how you're going to handle the divorce, um, people start fighting and rolling up their sleeves. And the costs of that far outweigh the costs of preparing a proper shareholders agreement. 
And I would think the challenges uh, that people face today versus, let's say, 10, 15 years ago, in terms of the costs of, of even just setting up a business, whether it be land, buildings, staffing, all those kinds of things. I mean, everything sort of gets exacerbated the, for 2018 time uh, versus 2010 time. Is, is, that, is that a fair uh, observation or, am I, or is, it, is it all pretty gradual as we, as we move through? No, I, I think that's a pretty fair observation. Absolutely. And, and Steve, we also discussed, you know, a unanimous shareholders agreement. So what is that and, and how can that help a business? That's, um, that's a really uh, interesting area of law. There, that really starts at understanding the difference between the business owners and the directors of a company. Okay. The business owners I always refer to as investors, um, and the managers of the company are the directors of the company. Business owners aren't exposed to risk. That's why we incorporate. We incorporate to ensure that your personal assets aren't exposed um, if you run into some business challenges. Um, if, however, um, you and, – and there can be – typically there's a high correlation between the owners and the people that manage the business, particularly in small businesses. But often that's not the case. Often shareholders will uh, elect directors to run their businesses, and in doing that, um, you know, the control really resides with these directors. In some situations, you may want to take that control back. Steve Fruitman is the founding partner of Magellan Law Group in Langley, nice and easy to get a hold of, specializing in business law. You're listening to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scullin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates, helping you get out of debt. You're listening to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scullin with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates, helping you get out of debt. We've got Taylor Mark in the studio with us, certified financial planner, chartered life underwriter, certified health insurance specialist, over 15 years of experience. She's the founder and CEO of Engrace Financial Solutions, a firm that's all about service and doing what's best for you, the client. Welcome, Taylor. Thank you very much. So glad to be here. It's uh, And this is going to be an interesting segment. Mm-hmm. It's so great, Blair, when we do case studies and when we talk about real people facing real situations and then coming up with the solutions. And that's what we've got with Taylor right yeah, now. Exactly. As humans, we all love stories. And I think I'm thrilled too, that usually I'm the person telling the stories. That's all about debt and what we can do, which is very important. But I think for the listeners, they're going to learn a bunch today about, you know, if it's not a debt problem, but there are other issues, you know, what can someone like Taylor provide as, as a service? So yeah, why don't we, we jump into there? Um, so Taylor, there's a couple examples you, you gave us here. Uh, why don't we start with the first one? You tell us the background of the client situation, what was going on? Okay, sure. So we are are looking to help uh, three children take care of their parents. The parents are 65 years old and 67 years old. Mom is healthy. Dad, not as healthy because he has type 2 diabetes. He's not insulin dependent, but there's, there's issues. And so the problem is that the parents don't have a lot of savings built up, but their house is paid for. It's oh. worth about $2 million. Which is a lot. Which is yeah. a lot, but you can't eat your house. Right. You can live in it, but you can't eat it. Can't eat it. No. So, so 
and and their essentially their income is through CPP and OAS approximately twelve hundred dollars per person. So they're living on twenty four hundred dollars per month, and that might be okay because they're not paying mortgage or anything. But any small things that could come along could really, you know, shaken their house so or their situation. So the the kids are grown and they're worried and they want to come together and and see what they can do for their parents. And and we know based on how life goes, even though they're only 65 and 67, um, things are only going to get a little more challenging, especially Correct. if you've got type 2 diabetes. That can throw you for a loop in all kinds of different ways. And you never know. You exactly. never know how it's going to go. So let's talk about uh, long-term care insurance because that's the first thing that comes to mind mm-hmm. is that they that's what they need. And that would be typically what would be recommended to them. And I did. I show them uh, the options to look at long-term care insurance. The problem with it is that um, they're coming to this, this type of coverage at a age 65 67 years old mm. right. and and that's and that's really uh, that's not the time to buy is it not the time no. to buy mm. it's always the case of when you're young and you're healthy i usually start talking to my clients around late 40s to look at long-term care insurance so at 65 67 it's expensive and the other aspect of it is it's really hard to qualify so in most cases it's a yes or no qualification uh, qualification mm-hmm. they don't the insurance company don't usually say, well, you are a higher risk, so we'll charge you more insur- uh, more costs in order to make up for it. They'll just say, no, we don't want you. Right. And, and how do those payments actually work if you do qualify for it? So let's say that one of the, the spouses had to go into long-term care. Um, how does that work for the, the finances of the family? There's a few different options, but the one that I usually use is uh, income-based, or not income-based. Essentially, it's a monthly income hmm. that comes to you for as long as you're in that situation and, and or uh, until the benefit period expires. So what that means is that uh, you can have multiple claims on one policy. So for example, you can have a five-year term benefit where over the course of, of this person's lifetime, for different reasons, could be claiming on it multiple times. And it will, it will just keep going until that benefit period expires. Okay. What's the um, so the down and the downside of it? You talked about the premium because of the of the cost. What else, what other options do do they have at this point? Well, I I got a little bit creative and I did something that I call my name for it is insured contingency savings plan. I wondered why I hadn't heard of that before. Okay, so it's it's an innovative thing. Okay, it's yeah. not patented, so sorry. <laughs> yeah. So you can use it if you want. There you go. Uh, essentially, it's just life insurance, but life insurance on the parents that are very specifically designed to create cash flow inside that policy. Hmm. Okay. So we'll need to explain that. Yes, yeah. it sounds awesome, but how does it work? <laughs> yeah. So how does it work is that we put a life insurance policy on both both of the parents, and because of the dad being diabetes, uh, we probably do something that's called joint last to die, meaning that the insurance benefit pays out upon the death of both parents passing away. Uh, So the cash value inside is built over time. And when you have a certain amount inside there and there's a need for cash flow, you can draw upon that amount by either withdrawing it 
like totally taking it out, or you could leverage against it. A variations of using your life insurance like a line of credit, if you will. So you're paying money each month, and then part of the premium that you're paying is going to almost the savings account within the policy. Exactly. Is that what we're saying? And you can take that money out at some point mm-hmm. um, or borrow against it. And then I'm just trying to think this through. And then if, if the spouses were to pass away, the benefit gets that amount gets deducted any any loans you've taken out okay i think i'm on on the stage excellent blair you should be in this industry Uh, okay for somebody who's not (laughs) in this industry uh they're only bringing in twenty four hundred dollars a month so what kind of premium costs are we looking at for something like this well, first of all, it's going to be paid for by the children. Okay. okay. All right. That's an important piece of it. Yes, that's an important piece. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, and so that's the children investing in, in this uh, savings plan, if Got you it. will. Okay. And, and if there's a need, they can draw upon it. Sure. If there's not a need, which is the best case scenario, yes. then what happens is that the money gets, um, continues to grow tax yeah. shelter inside the policy and, and they themselves, if they want to, can use that for, for their own needs if they want. And, and or upon the death of the parents, they will have the life insurance proceed paid out to them. Got it. And that usually is a much greater amount than what they invest in. That's so interesting that it's a tax-deferred growth. That's what you would call it, right? Exactly. That's really interesting that you can do that. Now, is there a downside to this? Yes. The downside is that there is a commitment built into that. Uh, The one I designed for this case is 20 years where they need to, to continue paying. However, there's without getting into it because we don't have time, but there is way to shorten that 20 years, even though it's technically a 20-year pay policy. And what's the other downside? There's always other downsides, I'm sure. there's you talked about the hmm. commitment of 20 years the cash value has an underlying guarantee built into the policy right. but it's like that like a GIC which is small growth small amount so when we look at the needs analysis we're looking at looking at it based on the projected uh, growth of the cash value which sure. unfortunately isn't guaranteed okay but it's reasonable, so right. we can expect that. All right. So I think this this situation is probably more more common than, than not with a lot of folks in Vancouver are sitting mm-hmm. on a lot of equity, but they just don't want to sell their house. Exactly. Right? Um, you know, they've lived there for a long time. In the last five years, they've done quite well, so they don't even want to be out of the market. But if they don't have the cash flow and families willing to help them out, well, then this type of a product could, could make a lot of sense in that example. Because um, I see a lot of clients who think, oh, maybe a reverse mortgage or something like that. But this is a good alternative, right? <laughs> I'm glad you mentioned reverse mortgage because the life insurance policy that's designed is essentially like a reverse mortgage using life insurance. That's really interesting. I, I, I've never heard of anything like that before. Good mm. on you for creating that, Taylor. Well, but what, Thank what, what you. was the result? You provided them yeah. two options, right? So, so in the end, uh, the the children did choose the life insurance option uh, because it's they're most likely be able to uh, get that through from a qualification perspective. And then also the fact that uh, if, you know, best case scenario or worst case scenario, there there is an insured option behind it. 
Excellent. We've been talking with Taylor Mark, and there's a couple of ways that you can talk to her directly, if you like. First of all, her website, ingracefinancials.com. Secondly, she has a YouTube uh, channel. Can we call it? Yeah, YouTube channel. It's called Street Smarts with Taylor. Uh, Taylor's a certified financial planner, founder and CEO of Ingrace Financial Solutions, a firm that's all about service and doing what's best for you, the client. And just in case you forgot, you're listening to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates, helping you get out of debt. The proceeding was a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.